This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Dr. Leah Weiss is author of the great new book, How We Work, Live Your Purpose, Reclaim Your Sanity, and Embrace the Daily Grind. It's really good stuff. Leah teaches a perennially waitlisted course at Stanford Business School. It's called Leading with Mindfulness and Compassion, and she brings that course to life in this, in this wonderful new book. She's got a degree in social work and in theology, so she brings a distinctive point of view to business education. As a lecturer, teacher, trainer, she's developed customized methods for integrating evidence-based meditation techniques with the latest academic research. She provides coaching and consulting sessions for groups, for individuals, for organizations. She's worked closely with the Dalai Lama's main interpreter. And in this conversation coming up, we get the background on that fascinating story. She's also led the Compassion Education and Scholarship Program at Hope Lab. So now, get set to listen and learn from a mindfulness expert who specializes in bringing hearts and minds into alignment at work and beyond. It's Leah Weiss. Hey, Leah. Welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. Um, you know, when I started teaching my total leadership course here in 2001, after I created it when I was an executive at Ford Motor Company for a few years prior to that, and had done research here at Wharton since the early 90s on integrating work and the different parts of life and on leadership development. What we did at Ford was to create a model that, that brought those two fields together. And so for almost 20 years now, I've been in this game. And you know, the world has changed a lot in, in that time period. Uh, and and now, as I said it, you know, just a couple of minutes ago, mindfulness, which is all about integrating your heart and mind, your life, the different parts of it, has become such a, a major a focus of attention. We've had a number of guests talking about mindfulness, attention, uh, distraction and its discontents, finding purpose and meaning at work, the importance of tending to one's own mental health. It's everywhere now. As our, you know, people are feeling more overwhelmed and, and in a greater need for a model that can help them in a realistic way. So before we jump into talking about your course and the book, could you just give us a brief bit of background about your own journey? Because it's certainly not standard for a Stanford Business School faculty member to also have a social work degree and a theology degree, as, as I understand you do. So you must have a, a unique window on the human condition as it's evidenced by your students and clients. Um, how'd you get into this? Yes, it, it's definitely true. There's not a ton of theologians. There's a couple, though, uh, at the business school. But, um, yes, I 
I got into this work, um, it was a teenager, really. I became very interested in, um, in the practices and processes of how we, um, how we learn in terms of our attention regulation, mm-hmm. how we learn um, in relation to other people and our values. And my research has really, um, over the years, been a parallel track with a very practical path of spending. You know, I was doing my doctorate in education and those other degrees. Um, I was spending 100 days in meditation retreats each year and then going in and out of graduate school. Um, So for me, it's always been a question of practice plus research um, with an eye towards how can we make uh, practical changes that make sense in our lives. Um, and yeah, I think for me, a big uh, eye opener has really been becoming a mother, uh, working full time mm-hmm. as the primary um, breadwinner in my family oh, um, wow. with three young children and, and trying to understand how to leverage the, the research and practices in a way that allows for the realities of an extremely, um, not just busy life, but a lot of different roles. Um, Mm -hmm. And it didn't ever seem consistent to me that um, the idea of meditation or, um, or being on the cushion has never been the whole story historically. Mm -hmm. Um, And in terms of what we know about how people learn these skills and apply them, there's much more to it. And that's, the part that I think has been underrepresented in our conversations about mindfulness while it's become very popular the last um, period of time, which is wonderful. I think it's getting a lot of important Mm -hmm. practice and ideas into our cultural context. Like you're saying 20 years ago wouldn't have happened. Um, But I do think we're skewed towards certain sides of it that my work is aiming to uh, rebalance, if you will. By by somehow uh, helping people to understand how they can be more mindful when they're standing at the line at Starbucks waiting for their coffee and wanting to push the person in front of them over so they can get their coffee faster or in any other situation of everyday life. Yeah, I mean, we spend the majority of our waking hours, many of us at work, we spend more time with our colleagues and our loved ones and those relationships... Wait a minute, they, Leah. You're assuming there that our colleagues are not our loved ones. They may well be. <laughs> but for many people, um, we're not working with our closest yeah. um, family and friends. Mm-hmm. So we have relationships that, uh, that we are spending time in. And the whole point of my book is really how can we see those as um, opportunities mm-hmm. to grow as people which, by the way, makes a big difference in terms of our productivity and our effectiveness and in our work goals and our KPIs that we would be looking at. It's actually good business to be more mindful, to be more compassionate. And the question just becomes, how do you do it? So I, I want to return to this question of you know the, the sort of productivity orientation that so much of mindfulness uh, work has has sort of bent to in the in the modern era, 
and where there are potential risks in that, you know, sort of commercialization of the practices and wisdom of this ancient philosophy and method. Um, but before we do, sure. let me um, see if I can uh, have us be a bit more mindful in this conversation about our intentions, because I know one of the things that you write about that is so important in the learning journeys that people undertake on a daily or weekly or yearly or lifelong basis, and, and you know, the you know, the, one of the keys to sort of breaking through to that other level of awareness is to to be intentional. Uh, good start, good middle, good end. I'm I, I'm quite I'm paraphrasing there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's we've already started, but let's consider this still a part of our prologue in this conversation. And let me ask you, what would be? Um, I don't usually do this, Leah, but I thought with you it, it would make it just makes perfect sense for me to try this. Uh, what would be a, a good outcome? Like, as we start this conversation, what would be, um, what's, what's your intention in it? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I've been having a lot of conversations around this book launch. And what I have is my intention going into them. Um, they're often unscripted. And there's a lot of zigs and zags, which mm-hmm. I think is um, really exciting. But the fundamental intention I have going into them is that the conversation itself be of service to the listeners, um, you know, because we all have limited time and mm-hmm. people are commuting on the way home or mm-hmm. listening to this as part of their evening routine. I hope that we in our discussion and dialogue and debate can bring something that is of service that advances their thinking that mm-hmm. gives them um, uh, insight into something they'd like to tactically try mm-hmm. or do that to me um, is is really a goal um, okay that, that's what I hope for what about you good no that's entirely aligned with why I do this every week uh, is to is to bring uh, practical value to listeners uh, in response to questions or challenges that they're facing in their lives or ways in which they want to expand their awareness, their consciousness of you know who they are, what they want to be in the world, and, and how to bring their whole selves to all the different parts of their lives in a way that feels free. So, um, so I, I think we are, uh, as I said, very much aligned in our, in our interests. Let's see how we do. Um, so, so what's the main message in your book that you want people to take away from it? Um, my main focus in the book is that our ability to understand that the way we experience our work in our lives um, is much, we have a lot more agency in that process mm-hmm. and there's a lot that we can do, even though there's a lot that's out of our control, the things that we can um, influence and shape make a huge difference for our well-being, for our health, for our ability to support one another um, and have meaningful lives. So really, my book comes down to we can take ideas like compassion and purpose and mindfulness and operationalize them in small ways that will have 
immense value over time. And the path to doing that is an experimental one that we get there by taking small steps and setting intentions like we just did and reflecting on whether we're moving in our intended direction or not, or whether the mm-hmm. goals need to be redefined. It's, it's getting people into that process, making that feel doable to just start, even in the messiness. That's mm-hmm. my goal. We have very much the same goals, then, Leah, in our work, because what I've been doing with, with Total Leadership these last two decades is, is helping people to design experiments, and that term is a really useful one I have found, uh, to lower resistance to trying something new. And, and I teach the theory of small wins to help them see how when you take a small step in a direction you choose and then continually adjust in light of new data, uh, you, 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 you gain a, a sense of confidence and competence and, and a greater sense of freedom uh, in moving towards the world you want to try to create. So uh, I, I am deeply curious about what you are discovering about what is most essential, most, most um, crucial for people to understand as they... Uh, undertake such uh, a learning journey like how do you how do you take them there so I think a big part of the secret sauce when um, this process is effective is in helping people I think for a lot of the people I work with and I'll be curious to see if this resonates with what you see you know when I'm teaching at Stanford when I'm working in organizations Um, With high-performing people, the expectations that people have of themselves, that they have of other people around them, are incredibly high, are impossibly high. And that's part of what's gotten them to where they are. Mm -hmm. But often, I think there's a fundamental mistake that people make that it's the negative perfectionism, the relentlessness is the, the engine that drives success when actually what we know from research, what people see when they examine their experience is that this negative perfectionism, this relentless beating up on themselves is actually they're doing as well as they are in spite of that. And I think that seeing and Wait, could you say that again? That last part? They're doing as well as they are. They're ending up at Stanford. They're ending up in these incredibly mm-hmm. prestigious jobs in spite of this um, dynamic of mm-hmm. self-deprecation, of you know, negative self-criticism mm-hmm. that's, um, that's pervasive for most, most, most people once they start paying attention. Mm-hmm. And I think the real aha that happens is when we bring mindfulness to our own internal experience of how we're working and how we're relating to Mm -hmm. other people, that if we see some of these dynamics and then learn to actually be able to do the cliche of of learning from failure and being curious about Mm -hmm. feedback and where we can learn, like that's not where most people are starting. It's deeply uncomfortable. to not get something right or to hear something that could be improved on about so, ourselves. So how does so your method... For me, that's huge. That, that's like the center of where the work is. And when we do that, then our relationship with ourselves improves and our relationships with other people transform. 
So, so the important breakthrough is to um, help people understand and to experience <clears throat> the power, the value in seeing their um, their emotional life, uh, and and to embrace it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And fundamentally seeing that emotions are not something that need to be quarantined while we're at work, Mm -hmm. that they're part of what, how we, how we can function in our jobs. We need the information Mm -hmm. that our emotions as well as our cognitive functioning give us. So, and I think that part, a big part of that training that I offer people is how do you relearn to to understand your physical, emotional experience while you're working and not only make sense of it, but leverage it. So uh, I know this is not easy to do, uh, but let me ask you anyway, how would you describe in a sort of boiled down version the essence of the process that, that you guide people through in your courses and in your book that helps them to make that breakthrough? Um, it's a great question. So I think... Part of it, the the mindfulness and the purpose are like the foundations, right? So the purpose is really like someone needs to know what they're about, what they're heading towards, and how that maps on to their day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. And where that's not showing up is a really important piece of the information. Mm -hmm. So understanding where are the gaps between what I want, my work, what I want my life as a whole to be mm-hmm. and how I'm actually spending my time. Mm-hmm. Then we use mindfulness as a way to start to understand where those gaps are coming from and be able to bridge them to narrow those gaps. How does and that work? As, Could you explain well, how, that, that process? Yeah. There's so many different ways of approaching it, but I can mm-hmm. give you one example, which is, you know, taking stock, like, and you can do it in a very tactical way of, um, you know, doing forensics on your calendar that forensics. You... Ooh, I like that. <laughs> forensics on our calendar. So every Friday, it's getting legal we're looking now. back at where we spent our time. Uh-huh. And if we have some clarity on what our purpose is, then, you know, and that may be in a few different places, like it may be, this is what I wanted my biggest priority to accomplish during the working hours was this was my physical health um, priorities, this was my relational priorities with my kids, my husband, my friends. And I look back at my calendar, and where did I actually spend my time? Mm -hmm. And if we do that as a matter of process, as we enter into each week, set our intentions, the end of each week, look back, we can get better and better. And not just understanding um, post hoc where our time went, but predicting the sinks, um, the sinkholes where our time is, Mm -hmm. I'm mixing metaphors, but where our time, um, the meetings, the two hour meeting that it's not clear why we were invited to participate, but we said yes, and here it is on our calendar. you know, we look at our time differently if we have this clarity in, mm-hmm. in purpose and in where we tend to go off the rails and moving towards that. And then there's layers deeper that we go. And so this is really let me we, jump in here and ask yeah. is that sure. intentionality about the investment or allocation of attention, say, in a week uh, and looking forward and then looking back as to 
you know, how it went and, and whether there was indeed alignment between your intentions and values and purpose and where your time was invested. That is a form of mindfulness training. Yes? Yes, it can be. It definitely can Mm -hmm. be, especially if we bridge it with understanding, okay, if my plan for what my priority was, I went off the rails with respect to that plan, Mm -hmm. what was I thinking, feeling, believing when I -hmm. made the choice to spend the afternoon lost in my inbox or, you know, do a secondary or tertiary activity rather than the primary thing. And often there's an emotional discomfort. I don't exactly mm-hmm. know what I'm supposed to be doing or, um, you know, or there, I feel uncomfortable. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it well, or, mm-hmm. you know, there's some sort of anxiety procrastination yes. loop happening. So that is where like we layer in more mm-hmm. and more of the mindfulness with the very tactical decisions so, we're making. So like, why do people go to Twitter instead of, you know, working out that next paragraph on the thing that they're supposed to write? Yes, exactly. <laughs> what were you feeling? No, I'm asking it. Do you know the answer to that question? <laughs> For many people, yeah. it's anxiety. Yeah. Or for many people, it's, you know, self-criticism. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I, this isn't, this whole report isn't going as well, or this right. email, or whatever I'm working on. It doesn't feel like it's moving in the right direction. I, I need suck. relief. Yeah, yes. I suck. I'm never going to get it right. I'm not sure what they want from me anyway. Uh, and I need a break from that feeling. Give so me Twitter. To Twitter. Give me Who's Twitter. Who's going to solve it? I don't have to think. Yeah. That's that's part of the addiction cycle, right? Yeah, it's like a smoke. Mm-hmm. It's it, because it's trying to get relief in a way that then there's less time when we come back to the project, and we feel mm-hmm. more anxiety and more. And then we beat up on ourselves. Oh, I just wasted time yes. cyber loafing. What a loser I am! Yeah, what? I could have asked for help. I could have done any number of productive. So, you know, I could have clarified the instructions. I could have. So what is it? With someone, what is it that you? do that uh, that enables you to help people become conscious in, in, in this way of really uh, taking account of the choices that they're making at a just below conscious level. And this is where the training comes in, where the if you choose to learn a seated meditation practice, it's a great way to clarify like what does anxiety look like when I'm when I'm feeling it in the moment and then if I if I'm seeing that if I'm start to learn to be aware of what these emotions and emotions are sensations what they look like then we recognize them real time more and more effectively so the training becomes not just being great meditators if you meditate the purpose of your meditating is to be able to apply your awareness of your thoughts, of your emotions, mm-hmm. of your physical sensations in relationship, in stressful environments. Mm-hmm. So that's always that's that's where you're training to be. Yeah, you're training to perform. Exactly. Right? Not like training to train. Yeah. <laughs> Although training does help, right? I mean, you focus your mind for an hour or a half hour or whatever it is. Uh, on your breath or however, you know, whatever the sort of uh, concentrating uh, mechanism is that you choose, it does change your, your brain structure and, uh, and, uh, and I, you're probably more familiar with this research than I am, uh, and, and your capacity for that metacognition, right? 
Absolutely. It, it does change. But I think one of the problems that gets people um, tied up around this is if we make the dose so high that nobody is going to be able to do it. If we say it's 45 minutes or it's an hour, mm-hmm. then it's unattainable. It's like saying I should go and run a triath- or do a triathlon tomorrow. I mm-hmm. can't accomplish that. It's much healthier if you tell me I should get out and move starting with like 10 minute increments if I've been doing nothing. So I think that's part of like, you can train, you Mm -hmm. can do it and start just like you would with exercise. Yeah. And when at that. (laughs) Say more if you can about how, how people should get started. How can they use uh, the, the approach that you have described so well in your book? Hmm. I mean, I think one helpful starting point is to pick one part of our purpose or one key value and to make a um, practice plan around it Mm -hmm. that fits for you. So an example of what that might look like. Um, So one person I was recently speaking with um, working at a tech company who um, just not feeling it for the job. You know, it's like, it's a great job, but just not super lit up about going in and wanted to find, you know, rekindle some sort of um, engagement that wasn't there. So the conversation moves along to identifying what's one place that, um, that maps onto a key, um, a key value that you have. And for them, a key value is you know, the world being a more compassionate place. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that look like in a day-to-day way in a job function? Well, a way, one way you could translate that is to just paying more attention, investing where possible in relationships, in you know, taking the minute to be generous and ask someone, Um, about their kid or about their vacation or about their hobby and really listening to what they're sharing and seeing, you know, these small engagements that we can create with other people Mm -hmm. um, that they matter, especially in a world where loneliness is so prominent, you know, that for for people, that moment where we ask them and really listened about Mm -hmm. something they care about, that could be the highlight of their day, which it's great for us. It's great for everyone. It costs so little, but it changes so much. So, uh, micro moments, as uh, as uh, one of the researchers you cite refers to them. Yeah, as, smart and, bracket. Yeah. So, and and explain if you would then how 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 this is a sort of application of the wisdom, the ancient wisdom of mindfulness meditation techniques through the ages, uh, transported from the east. How how is that, what you just described, a, a, an outcropping of, of mindfulness in action? So it's interesting. The, the way that, that mindfulness is framed when you're looking at the traditions that it comes out of, it's closely connected with compassion, and mm-hmm. it's closely connected with activities of daily living. Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which if we are distracted by our own internal or external state, we are unavailable to other people, um, which perpetuates a cycle of being isolated, unhappy, distracted, that there's this 
kind of hack that we can insert of, of just recognizing people around us and, you know, seeing the ways in which we might fall into, um, you know, if we work in an organization, seeing a person as the, the function that they fill instead of mm-hmm. when we pass them in the hall um, or in the break room or send emails with them, see, recognizing that they have this humanity, which is a completely different perspective mm-hmm. on them. And it's a completely different perspective that we are then engaging with. And this is, you know, it has very practical implications for building relationships, for working better with people, for being more engaged with our jobs. But it's also just like fundamental sanity that isn't even just Eastern wisdom. The the great book that came out last year with the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, the book of joy. So much of their conversations were about these relational mindset perspectives um, and that those are the key to joy. Um, and so I, I think that it's it, what, one of the things I love about that book is it's bringing together not just the Eastern perspective, but, but also this is, you know, at the core of all the wisdom traditions, compassion. And seeing the perspective of the other and, and, and embracing it and, and connecting to it. So you've worked with the Dalai Lama's uh, interpreter. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about that relationship and what it's meant for you and your work? Jimpa, um, Tupton Jimpa has been the, um, the Dalai Lama's primary interpreter for over 20 years. Um, he's the chairman of Minds and Life. He's a scholar. Um, he's written numerous books, um, and he's really been a thought leader in this space of the overlapping between the wisdom traditions and, um, and contemporary research mm-hmm. and what are the upshots for us <laughs> as people and how we, um, how we live better lives. So I had the good fortune to interview him when I was finishing up my doctorate in education. I was writing about this secularized practices of compassion and looking at how they were unfolding and different implications um, and called him up and he was very generous in answering my questions. And then like many wise people, he was very curious about how, you know, why I was asking him the mm-hmm. specific sort mm-hmm. of line of questioning that I was. And we developed um a relationship in that call, he had actually invited me. I remember it vividly because I had my eight-month-old daughter um, on the floor next to me. Child care hadn't happened that day. It was like another crazy storm mm-hmm. in Boston that year. So she's playing, and I'm just like hoping she's going to be quiet while I'm having this call. And he asked me, you know, we have this um, this offsite that we're doing with uh, the team I've been working on this program with in like three weeks. Can you get there? And I'm like looking down at this newborn. I hadn't traveled since I'd had her, you know, all sorts of, it seemed so overwhelming that I knew I had to get there. Um, and so I did. And that was the beginning of my relationship. I, already, I had gone to Stanford as an undergrad, but that's how I got back involved at the Compassion Center. And then out of that, the work I do at the business school um, evolved while I was back on campus at the Compassion Center, working with Jimpa on our teacher training so, program for our compassion cultivation training, which is an eight-week program um, that is it's 
targets developing compassion mm-hmm. in a very practical way. And how do you, um, how do you, what's the essence of that, of that method? What happens? How are people transformed by that experience? Um, so I, I like to say that the secret sauce for that program is very similar to what we've been talking about. It's this, in the program, we call it common humanity. Um, this construct of seeing other people as being just like me in some fundamental way, wanting mm-hmm. to be happy, not wanting to be sick, wanting to have meaningful careers, relationships, fear, uh, they have fears, all the, the whole thing. And when we can bring in the full catastrophe, yeah, when we <laughs> can bring in that perspective and then start applying it, not just in our in-group or when we agree with or like the person, <laughs> but really when it gets interesting is, mm-hmm. you know, when we start expanding to people we don't know and don't like um, mm-hmm. And and those are similar. Those are consistent principles with what I do at the business school. It's like, what do you do with that annoying coworker? And you probably know this when you read the research on what drives people nuts at work. It's things like, you know, a loud coworker or someone chewing loudly. It's like these mundane little things that grate on us over time. So you know, the person who interrupts or talks too much or too little, you know, these that we're working with day in and day out. So yes. if we can bring that common humanity perspective and into those relationships. How does that work? How does the you know, the emphasis on here's another human being who's struggling just like you are, suffering in life just as you are, how does that help that that those kinds of questions or that that uh, mirror that that is held up around you you know in, in in addressing those challenges those questions how does that help to get past the deeply ingrained habits of mind that tend to reject the other or to look upon them with disdain or annoyance or rage or whatever the emotion is yeah it, it, what happens when we apply at first artificially as we're, you know, stretching our compassion mm-hmm. and strengthening our compassion, um, we can learn to just like you're, you're pointing to in the way you even ask the question that we have constructs, we have ideas about other people that, you know, we, when we are unable to access compassion, then, you know, we've been blocked. There's some pretty specific ways. We've either not noticed that they're suffering or Mm. we've noticed it, but we've decided the person deserves it in some way, Mm -hmm. or maybe they deserve support, but I don't have the resources to give it to them. Mm -hmm. So we start to become able to untangle our own knot and, and see what is blocking um, a compassionate response. Like what? But part of what gets interesting is the yeah. compassionate response might not always, you know, be like, you know, the nice, obvious sort of like, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes, especially if we're talking about a workplace or parenting, often the yeah, compassionate response is setting saying limits, the tough thing. Saying that no. Someone, no one else will. Right. Providing constructive feedback or, you know, holding up a picture that the other might not want to see, but that they need to see. That they need to see that we're so often, I just had someone after an executive education session at Stanford a couple of weeks ago, uh, a VP at one of a very large healthcare company come up afterwards and was like, is there a way around what I've experienced my whole career that when there's someone who's in an organization and they just aren't, they're perceived that they're just off, like their personality's off. 
that people distance themselves. Is there another way that this can play out where the person can actually get clear feedback and get behavioral support and goals and, you know, develop instead of becoming a pariah because they have some habits that are annoying. And what would you tell them or her? I, that's a hundred percent what I train my students to do. And what I think is we can't view ourselves as compassionate leaders if we're not willing to have the hard conversations, which means a lot of courage is, is required. And we also need a lot of skill, um, because we can practice and get better at having those difficult conversations. Um, but we have to, you know, the culture that we're working in has to value it. We ourselves have to practice um, and get the ability to do it. Um, you know, all of those things have to come into play. But, yes, I think we can and we should and we must. And Jeff Hard Wiener though. said it really well. The CEO of LinkedIn was in my – he visited my class winter quarter – And um, someone was asking him, you know, the sort of quintessential, can you fire someone in a compassionate way question, because LinkedIn has compassion as one of its core values. And, you know, what I really appreciated in his answer, one of the things that he pointed to was that no one, when they're getting let go, should be surprised. And that is Mm -hmm. not a compassionate organizational response. You will, as a compassionate organization, have to let people go. But if people are surprised or if they're not getting, you know, clarity about what wasn't working and didn't have a chance to understand and improve that, then mm-hmm. you've fallen short. And I, I, mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Me too. So, Leah, I'm wondering if you might have an example you're willing to share of when you were, you know, you had to muster the courage to have a, a difficult conversation that required both compassion and a kind of vulnerability that you're training and uh you know what you help others to do every day where you were really called upon to uh to to sort of uh demonstrate uh compassion yeah that's a, i i <laughs> there's so many times i've tried to i can give one that will be a very imperfect example which might make it they all are that's fine go ahead <laughs> So, you know, I just launched this book, and it's been a really intense um, amount of travel the last few months, and I have these three young kids, seven, four, and three, and it's a lot. Um, And there's a woman on my team who I work very closely with who I have an immense, immense amount of respect for. And I could just tell over a period of time, like, our relationship was kind of going sideways. And... You know, just every, there were more miscommunications and just kind of more frustrations. And, you know, both when we spoke and in Slack, which is our main sort of way of, mm-hmm. of dealing. And so I picked up the phone and I called her and I was just like, look, like things. And this wasn't the first time we've had a conversation, you know, but this was, I, I just was saying, I'm so, um, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated because I value you so much and I can tell that I am um, frustrating you um, and, you know, that I think we're in this cycle and um, and here are some things that I'm observing that are really Mm -hmm. hard for me, um, you know, to work with because they just don't 
feel characteristic of of the version of you I'm used to working with for over a year now. So you gave some examples, some behavioral Yeah, I gave some specific examples mm-hmm. and then was just like, you know, talk to me. What's going on? What are you experiencing? And mm-hmm. what's your experience of me? I know I've, you know, been challenging to deal with as I'm, you know, all over the place geographically and um, probably in other ways. So you were genuinely curious and also admitting to your own contribution to the to the difficulty. Yeah. And we had a real, um, it was a challenging conversation. I mean, and, and there were periods where each of us was kind of defensive and rejecting a little bit of the observations the other person was making or contextualizing them in a way that like bridged from being here's context to here's defensiveness. But by the end, we stuck with each other through it, you know, and it was one of these conversations that was so hard and so real. And it really felt like at the end that when we went back into the work we've been doing since that conversation a few weeks ago, um, it just, it, it, it changed how we're working together. It doesn't mean everything's perfect, and I annoy her, and I'm frustrated with things. So where's you know, where's the compassion in that? I'm jumping in here because I want to yeah. I want to hone in on the the where idea. is the compassion specifically? Yeah. yeah. So the compassion specifically comes in in a, a few different ways. One is saying I really fundamentally, as you pointed to, Stu, I want to understand your perspective. I also want to know. I want to acknowledge that. You know, I, the humility of saying I am a a big part of the knot that we have created Mm -hmm. together, Mm -hmm. right? So it's, it's not blaming and demonizing the other person. It's owning and taking the risk to name specific behavior and how it was challenging. Um, And also the ability in the course of the conversation to get defensive and then step back and and um, and see the other person be defensive and let them have the space to recover and just be a human in a difficult, mm-hmm. messy mm-hmm. relationship that is a professional relationship, mm-hmm. but it's also a human relationship. Mm-hmm. And to me, like that, that could have been a moment in which like this, the most valuable person on my team, we could have ended up parting ways if we hadn't kind of gotten into the mess in a really real way. Um, and, and I don't, you know, well, I'm you, not expressing it in the most eloquent you, way, but it, it felt like a really productive. Well, you, you represented to her that the relationship mattered and that she mattered to you. And that's I think, yes. a very important starting point for conversations like that. And I think is a, is a good example of what it means to, uh, to act with compassion um, we only have a couple minutes here, Leah, uh, so uh, there's a number of other questions I wanted to ask you about. Let me ask you this one. What advice do you have for parents in 2018? For a parent? Yes, for parents. Mm-hmm. It's something yeah. you've had a lot of experience with these last seven years, and okay. you're thinking about these questions all the time, I'm sure. So yeah. what's like the number one thing you would tell parents coming from the point of view of your your ideas and how we work and we really only have like a minute here so please cool. try to boil it down i'm going to boil the ocean and say the thing that i am spending the most time on and when i do parent ed that i highlight is let's in let's give equip our kids with more um, self-compassion and a foundation for their own resilience on being able to 
um, motivate themselves and Mm -hmm. deal with setbacks um, through having the capacity to relate to their own suffering. Um, self-compassion, I think, is the A number one skill I focus on with my little kids. That's, that and makes I a lot encourage. of sense. So what's, yeah. uh, in 20 seconds, what's the best place to start with doing that if you haven't as a parent? Modeling it and t- or talking about the challenge that we experience with it. I get into great conversations with my kids when I, quote unquote, slip up and say something self-deprecating in front of them and then talk to them about why that's not the way I actually want to frame this, you know, and obviously I talked to my three year old about that in different language, but right. Right. (laughs) So, so to talk to them about how, when you are in like a self hating or self deprecating frame of mind, how that is not helpful to you or to the people you're trying to love and serve. Yeah. I mean, a very practical we showed up my timestamp on my calendar, put my daughter's friend's birthday party in at the wrong time. I put it. So we showed up, you know, three hours early because it was East Coast calendar yeah, time yeah, yeah. or West Coast. I've done that. I was <laughs> so mortified. And it was just it was an awkward way we were received by the people because they uh, were surprised. Yes. And I left and I kept saying over and over like, oh, my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm so sorry. And then until I you said, caught you know yourself, what? caught myself. And I said to my daughter. I made a mistake. Let's not let this. We have three hours to go hang out. Let's not spend it with mommy saying recycling the same uh-huh. idea over and over. <laughs> uh, that's a great example. And thank you for that. Uh, so, Leah, how can uh, people find out more about your book and your other work? My website is the best place to touch base. I send out um, newsletters. I've got a, a bunch of tools and, um, and ways to connect on there. So leahweissphd.com. You want to spell that? Um, L-E-A-H-W-E-I-S-S-P-H-D.com. Leah, thanks so much for being my guest tonight and congratulations on your great new book, How We Work. It's been great talking with you. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Well, I hope my conversation with Leah Weiss was enjoyable for you and that it provided you with a a new perspective and some new tools for seeing more clearly the realities of your emotional life and strengthening your ability to align your actions with your values, which is a central task of the project of this podcast. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Ask a colleague, somebody at work or school, if you're in school, not working, about something in their life, his or her life, that they care about outside of work. And then follow up with another two or three questions where you're primary goal in that conversation is simply to uncover, discover, learn something new about who this person is beyond the work role that you encounter on a regular basis. See what happens. I'd love to hear from you as to what you do indeed learn from that experiment. You can contact me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or on Twitter at Stu Friedman. And Contact me at those places if you've got any kind of feedback or ideas about what you'd like to hear 
on our podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by commenting there or tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.